Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, drugs i dvushka. Welcome back to Happy Hour with Victabulous. Once more, dear friends, this is Victor, Victoria's husband, filling in for my beloved wife. Uh, today, one of my personal favorite movies, even though the movie is horribly wild and violent and so in poor taste, uh, is Clockwork Orange, 1971, Stanley Kubrick film. Uh, starring Malcolm McDowell, everyone's favorite malcontent. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if uh, Morgan Freeman is the voice of God, Malcolm McDowell is definitely the voice of the devil, or at least that's what I like to think, because uh, Homeboy could read the phone book, and I would pay for it. So, A Clockwork Orange, uh, what does it mean? Um, there's a couple of different things you can take away from here if you're uh, so interested. So, one thing here is... Uh, Apparently, it like came from an offhanded Cockney expression, as queer as a clockwork orange, um, which the source of the novel's author, Anthony Burgess, uh, claims he heard it in a London pub before World War II, decades before publishing his famous works in 1962. Burgess uh, has written and spoken about the title on several occasions. In an introduction called A Clockwork Orange Reshucked, he referred to a person who has the appearance of an organism, lovely with color and juice, but in fact is a clockwork toy to be wound up by God or the devil. Or since this is increasingly replacing both the almighty state. So just someone who, uh, I, I maybe just, uh, how do I put it? Um, here's, here's a good analogy. Um, it's, it's like someone who looks, uh, you know, Liveish, like lively, sweet, and you know, totally desirable, but like is just cold, calculative, and like just uh, entirely disciplined on the inside. So, yeah, maybe like the opposite of like a, a resting bitch face, you know. Uh, but again, um, written by Anthony Burgess, uh, this book was published in 1962, like in the heights of the Cold War. So, as a matter of fact, that's why there's a uh, what they call Nasdat in uh, Clockwork Orange, which is like the Russian slang that they use throughout the movie. Um, there's a couple instances that like I'll go into as it goes on. But like, for instance, when they say like, hey, real horror show, you know, like uh, you kind of think immediately like, oh, like a movie, you know, like a horror movie or something. Right. Uh, it's actually Horosho, which is like the Russian word for good or, uh, you know, well. And like I said, since this movie was, um, I'm sorry, since the book itself was published during the Cold War, like the author himself thought that like the Russians were going to take over the world. So um, in this book slash movie, it's kind of a dystopic future that's under like a totalitarian government. And with like the thoughts that the uh, Russians basically took over everything or communism basically came in and knocked everyone down and took over just about everything. So kind of like a, a pointed weapon, like the youth who's in revolt use like Russian slang kind of aggressively, or at least that's how you know, like, oh man, these guys are dangerous because they're speaking Russian. <laughs> Playing into like that, you know, old uh, trope, you know, fear the, fear the communists, fear the Russians, all that good stuff. All right. And uh, Kubrick, on the other hand, well, that guy was on a whole nother level. I mean, like if you look at the majority of his works, like uh, The Shining, um, Full Metal Jacket, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, or Dr. Strangelove, 
or How I Learned How to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which that's a truly amazing movie. Uh, it's it's pretty slow, but once more, it's you know it takes place in the heights of the Cold War. I got a thing for the Cold War, if you guys can't tell, but I digress. Uh, Kubrick, you know he he's on another level just compared to everyone else. Uh, again, I think anyone who's listening, if they haven't seen The Shining, stop this podcast immediately. Go watch The Shining. I'll give you a couple seconds to do that. Three, two, one. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy Hour with Victabulous. Uh, just kidding. Um, so once more, uh, we're going to be doing a Clockwork Orange. Uh, so let's not delay any further. Um, tonight, I decided to be a little uh, on theme. And in the theme of Clockwork Orange, I looked up how to make an orange whip. I uh, just didn't have any of the products or uh, you know alcohols to whip that up. So I'm going with the old tried and true screwdriver. Uh, I mean, I, I like it a little more fruity than uh, alcoholy. So I normally do like one part alcohol to like two parts orange juice. So I get more of the orange juice than anything else. Uh, but yeah, I digress. Uh, take a second, take your shoes off, put your feet up and let's get into this. All right. Hopefully you guys are ready for a bit of the ultra violence. That's uh, you're about ready to see. Uh, so the story takes place in London and a dystopian future, and our humble narrator, Alex Delarge, played by Malcolm McDowell, uh, Malcolm McDowell, excuse me, forgive me, uh, and his droogs, which, uh, again, it's a Russian word for friends. So, you know, you want to go, hey, what's up, my droogs? You're not off base by saying that. Uh, but I digress. Um, his droogs, or his lackeys, uh, there's Georgie, played by James Marcus, Dim, played by Warren Clark, and Pete, played by Michael Tarn, uh, and they're all seated seated in the Corova Milk Bar, and they're stoned on milk laced with narcotics. So, uh, yeah, again, in this strange dystopic future, I guess it's okay for teenagers uh, to go out and drink. Um, and when I say teenagers, I mean teenagers. They're only supposed to be like 15 in this movie, uh, despite their, you know, I guess the 70s charm of like everyone looking like an adult. Um, Again, in the novel, it's it's stated that like, Malcolm McDowell is actually the youngest person in the group. Um, I think they said that he is like 14, if I remember right. Everyone else is between like 15 and 16. So these are just a bunch of like punk kids, you know, having drinks, uh, getting ready for a night of violence ahead of them. Uh, that being said, they're drinking stuff like milk with adrenochrome, which it's like that, uh, that fantastical... Um, I guess gland from the human brain that just makes people super like crazy that they're just drinking milk mixed with that stuff. Uh, maybe that's why, why it's legal. I don't know. It's dystopic future, but I digress. Let's move on. Uh, shortly after they drink, the gang leaves the Corova for a night of ultraviolence. They encounter a wino in an underpass and like uh, they kind of egg him on at first. He's there, you know, singing an old Irish like uh, shanty. And they all arrive, they, you know, applaud and they clap them like, hey, man, do you have any change? And, you know, they immediately turn on him and just start beating him without a, like, inch of his life. Uh, just they're on a warpath tonight. Because after that, they arrive at a derelict theater while, you know, you hear Malcolm McDowell's lovely voice narrating like, you know, yeah, we just, we live the best of lives and went about our business. Um, there's a, there's a 
another gang on stage uh, led by like a rival who they call Billy Boy, who's preparing to rape a girl. Uh, and again, this movie is definitely not for kids because it's all about just violence and sex and violence and rape and drugs and just about everything that you know you really shouldn't be cheering for. Um, this movie is a good example of like what an anti-hero is or uh, I, I believe that's the right term, right? Or it's someone you're really, you shouldn't be rooting for. They're doing horrible things, but they are in fact the main character that you can't help but love. Uh, again, played by Malcolm McDowell. Just, I think I got a crush on Malcolm McDowell. I'm not going to lie. But like I said, anyone who's got a voice like that is like absolutely inviolably perfect in my eyes. Uh, I digress. They have their uh, little discussion there, and that's where the famous line uh, that Malcolm McDowell shouts out, Come get one of the yobbles! If you have any yobbles! Which they proceed to fight. Um, Alex and his uh, his two droogs that are with them are victorious. Uh, literally within a split scene, it shows the trio uh, head out into the dark countryside looking for more action, where uh, Alex drives a stolen Durango 95 sports car. Uh, after playing Hogs of the Road, which um, where <laughs> they drive on the wrong side of the road and run off a number of like motorists into ditches and like over embankments, just causing people to you know they're basically playing chicken with like no one who knows that they're playing chicken with. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like I said, you really shouldn't be cheering for these people, let alone this like punk kid who's you know not even half my age and doing just unspeakable acts of violence about these people uh alex suggests making a surprise visit which another one they're they're poised here uh they stop at a lonely country home that uh you know it's a lonely country home that displays a backlit sign that simply reads home uh this is going to come into play later spoilers alex uh tricks his way into the home uh, by claiming that like he's a victim of a car accident i think if i remember right he literally says like you know there's some punk kids out there driving and they wrote you know they drove me off the road so you know um the homeowner who's a writer uh frank alexander played by matt uh, patrick mcgee like you know kind of gets sympathetic and helps him inside and immediately like uh, alex and the boys just bust open the door and literally gang rape his wife the whole time while uh, Alex is crooning, singing in the rain. Um, it's a really disturbing scene just for the fact that, like, the song itself is so, you know, full of, like, light. And it's it's always had, like, a positive um, connotation to it. Just someone who's so in love that they have to sing about it, you know. And uh, yeah, the scene is, is just a stark parody of it. Uh, you know, Frank who's the uh, husband here is like literally watching his wife get raped while Alex is not only beating um, Frank to death or within an inch of his life. That is, um, you know, he's singing the song while he's uh, tearing off like his wife's clothes and, you know, proceeds to give her the old in and out as they say in this movie. Whew, uh, yeah. You know, that lizard part of my brain can't help but like just love this movie for, the amount of violence that like they do not hold back on in this so when they're finished having fun the gang returns to the Corova where uh, they get a few more drinks in them and it shows uh, Alex is like 
Uh, he's got a weird artistic side to him. I mean, almost perverse to a degree because there's uh, a group of theater um, actors who are seated like an adjacent table nearby and one of them begins to sing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and like listening to the woman Alex is just like ecstatic um ecstatic that is like uh, just oh, he fucking loves it <laughs> um I mean to quote from the movie it says I felt all the Malenki hairs uh, on my plot standing endwise so you know uh Malinky, again, another Russian word um, for little. So all my little hairs on my plot uh, standing erect, which his plot is what you exactly think. But uh, true to the lowbrow companions he keeps, uh, his friend called Dim ruins the mood when he makes like a fart noise or like kind of blows a raspberry, just, uh, you know, kind of just poo-pooing all over the, you know, opera singer's performance. Um, Alex, like, without taking his eyes off him just like immediately strikes uh dim in the crotch with his um, cane you know kind of a like forgive my interruption kind of thing you know makes eye contact tips his glass to the opera singer and you know uh yeah just kind of puts like a bad taste in dim's mouth like you know it, it's it's kind of the uh Maybe not the the last straw on his back, but it's definitely, you know, put a, a few pounds on the camel's back there. Alex arrives at his apartment just before dawn, climbing into bed, and he fantasizes scenes of violence while he's listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony while holding a snake. So, you know, just, <laughs> again, uh, trying to really hammer home that this kid, you know, Alex, is not a good dude because he, you know, likes snakes. Ooh. Uh, in the morning, Alex's mother... Uh, played by Sheila Rayner, tries to wake Alex for school, but he feigns like illness. You know, he says, I, I got a powerful pain in the Golova, which again, Russian for head. Um, you know, uh, at the breakfast table, she discusses the situation with his father, played by Philip Stone. Um, Alex's parents seem foolish and impotent, like they know that their kid is wild and out there, and you know, they really can't do anything about it. And it doesn't really seem like they have a plan to try to make things better. It's like that, uh, you know, just like, ah, crap, like, what can we really do in a situation here? Um, Alex, like, later awakens and wanders around the apartment, you know, scratching in his, in his underwear. <laughs> uh, when he walks in, like, the living room and he sees that uh, his probation officer is just there sitting, you know, leisurely waiting. But uh, that's Mr. Deltoid, played by Aubrey Morris. Uh, who's just sitting there in his parents' bedroom as he walks past the door and, you know, he's like, hey, Alex, why aren't you in school right now? Um, so the officer lectures Alex about his uh, school truancy and threatens him with jail. Yeah, a couple of things in that scene. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, aside from the whole, like, uh, sack tap that Mr. Deltoy does, uh, maybe hinting that he might have an interest in Alex and more than uh, just looking out for his well-being. Um, he absolutely winds up like drinking uh, denture water. I don't, I don't know if they say like whose teeth they are because a, um, both his parents are away, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of strange. There's just a thing of denture water just sitting there, which uh, yeah, again, Mr. Deltoid absently mindedly sips, and kind of gross. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, you know, I don't know if they're just trying to say that like this guy's just a gross individual, but yeah, he realizes he's drinking it and he's clearly put off by it. So, yeah. <laughs> so after Deltoid leaves, Alex, you know, gets ready for another busy day. Uh, <laughs> rather a busy day being truant. So instead of going to school, where does he go? The record store. Hell yeah. So he winds up at a record store um, asking if they like have the record he ordered. He sees, you know, two young and lovelies there in the record store and you know offers uh, a place for them to come back and listen to their fuzzy wobbles and hear angels trumpets and devil's trombones. You are welcome. Uh, so in the book here, it's, it's a bit more uh, disgusting than what's shown in the movie. Um, in the movie, you know, it's it's a like it's a setup, a sped up sex scene um, with the William Tell overture playing in the background. Um, I I did read a little trivia here, and I think it's fitting. But I guess the scene itself was like 28 minutes long, um, and uh, like the whole time that like uh, Malcolm McDowell was filming it, he kept trying to like keep it going longer than it really needed to. Um, I think he was just being a little shit for uh, Stanley Kubrick, even to the point to where like Kubrick was like, for the love of God, like, all right, that's enough. Cut. Like, stop. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he got carried away. But um, yeah, uh, which again, the scene is funny. But in the book, um, once more, Alex is only like 15. And the two girls he brings back, they're like 12 and 13. Um, and yeah, he he like as he's basically saying like what he's going to do to him he plans on making him cry and like make them absolutely regret like he's he's certainly some moral standard basically saying like well if you're not going to go to school this is going to happen to you um so here's your first hand lesson and yeah uh it kind of leaves a really more disgusting taste in your mouth after uh seeing the scene knowing that stuff so later that day after his uh parental lesson i guess i don't know what you want to call it uh he goes down ready to go meet his friends except they're all like in the apartment uh the apartment lobby waiting for him um where they ominously tell him that they've been talking uh they feel that alex has been bullying them especially dim and suggest that alex has been taking more than his fair share of the spoils from the robberies uh and then you know alex kind of flexes on him uh, intimidates him once more. Um, Georgie proposes like an idea that um, that'll make a lot of money. That he wants to rob a rich lady who owns a health farm in the country. So uh, that being said, Alex kind of perceives Georgie's independent threat, uh, or I'm sorry, Georgie's independent thinking as a threat. Um, but wants the pure democratic, so he goes along with it. You know, letting him think that like everything's you know okay. Uh, but it's really not. Um, he's like he's fuming at this point, and he's just calculating when he's gonna, you know, pull his uh, pull his next punch, which basically takes like two, not even two minutes after that scene. Uh, he immediately turns on his friends and just uh, proceeds to attack them. Like he pushes two of them into like a fountain, um, hits another one, and then like uh, especially like picks on dim since he like offers to help dim out of the water and instead just cuts his wrist um and like right after that he's expecting everything to be fine since he reestablishes dominance 
Um, they go like and eat at a restaurant, and just while they're there eating, Alex is like, you know what? Yeah, let's let's do that. That sounds like a good idea. Let's go with Georgie's idea. So again, playing into the fact that he is just just a shit person. Um, so they go to the health farm in the evening, and the Droogs try to use the same trick they've been pulling. Uh, like they try to use the same one like they did at a at Frank Alexander's house the night before. Um, telling them that one of them had been like seriously injured in an accident, but the uh, proprietor, played by Miriam Carlin, uh, is suspicious and immediately calls the police, telling them that like she's heard news reports about like uh, about the writer and his wife being victimized, like in a similar matter, and kind of like suspicious of how they were talking. Um, you know, she calls the cops and just hopes that it's nothing, but you know, would rather have someone out there than not. Um, when they're not let into the house, Alex climbs a drain pipe and enters a second floor window where he confronts the homeowner. Um, they fight. The woman is defending herself with the bust of Beethoven until Alex, uh, <laughs> beats her to death with a huge plastic phallic sculptor, sculpture. That is, um, so yeah, he, he literally goes her with a giant, like, dick, <laughs> um, Again, that scene, it's 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 super violent, but you can't help but laugh at just how, I guess, cheeky or, like, uh, naughty Alex is being when he's teasing um, this poor woman who's obviously about to, you know, either be raped or worse. And uh, clearly, you know, the worst option happened here. Um, but as, uh, as he's attacking her, there's police sirens that are heard in the distance, and Alex goes to run out the front door. Um, but it's right here when the Droogs take the revenge and Alex smashes, uh, I'm sorry, Dim smashes Alex in the face with a milk bottle and the Droogs flee, leaving Alex there screaming on the, you know, screaming on the ground and the police arrive to arrest him. At the police station, an uncooperative and belligerent Alex is questioned by several constables. Uh, when an overzealous constable presses his thumb against Alex's broken nose, Alex kicks him in the groin, uh, proceeding to the officers like in the room to begin to beat Alex until Deltoid shows up. Uh, again, his parole officer, Mr. Deltoid, uh, tells Alex that, like, unfortunately for him, the proprietor of the health farm has died, making Alex a murderer. Uh, Alex, not wanting to believe it he kind of plays it off as a joke um you know in disbelief he's like yeah no she was fine when i left you know i i you know trying to not believe the violence that he's actually done um but yeah it you know and he in fact killed her and since he's the only one there they're charging them for murder and uh at that point mr deltoid spits in his face tells him how disappointed he is and alex laughs it off but is soon headed for prison. Um, in prison, Alex uh, gets sentenced to 14 years in prison. Uh, he's uh, deposits his possessions. Uh, Chief Officer Michael Bates. Uh, I, I feel like I've seen this guy before, unless it's just like that kind of typecast of a character. But uh, I digress. Um, he makes Alex go through a uh, cavity search. You know, and, and uh, again, it's the 70s, so more skin than you really need to see. 
after answering several questions about his health and personal well-beings, Alex is given his prison garb, and he is now prisoner six double five three two one. So two years into prison, Alex is shown scheming uh, to get favors by feigning piety. Um, he helps the prison chaplain, played by Godfrey Quigley, with services and Bible studies. Um, you know, just kind of again playing the the poor, like playing up his good looks and you know innocent demeanor, uh, as opposed to, like the vicious killer that is on the inside of him. Um, but rather than like reflecting on like the contemplative of the Lord, like in the Bible, uh, Alex instead visualizes himself as uh, like uh, crucifying Jesus, uh, killing people in battle, and laying about with concubines in the Old Testament setting. So uh, there's a pretty good line in the movie, or rather, there's uh, the scene in the movie. I think does it more justice because it shows you know a stark cut of like an actor portraying Jesus of Nazareth carrying the cross as he's going his way up to um, the hill being flogged like the whole time. And they pan from the, you know, from the Jesus character to the Roman soldier who's in fact, you know, beating Jesus. And it's none other than Knock McDowell, you know. So again, putting it into perspective there, it's just he enjoys the bit of violence that he's, you know, hearing in the Bible more than taking back like the lessons that should be learned. So Alex tells the chaplain that he's heard of a new prison, uh, I'm sorry, a new treatment, the so-called Ludovico technique uh, that helps criminals get out of prison. The chaplain says that it's, it's experimental and he's not sure it's right for Alex, but Alex, uh, eager to beneagle a, a shortcut to freedom, um, vies to be selected for the experiment. And when the governor of interior, uh, interior, yeah, Wow, that screwdriver's hit me hard. Oh, boy. When the government's interior minister, Anthony Sharp, boom, nailed it, finally. Anthony uh, Sharp visits the prison. Alex makes a show of himself. The minister picks Alex as he's a perfect Ludovico subject. Alex is taken before the prison governor, played by Michael Glover, or Gover, that is. <laughs> Glover. Uh who tells the boy that although he'd rather punish him, the political party currently in power uh, has new ridiculous ideas about criminal reform, so Alex will be shortly released. Chief Officer Barnes then transports Alex to the Ludovico Center. Alex is given a room and is interviewed by Dr. Branham, uh, Madge Ryan. Uh, she promises... Uh, she promises him that he'll be fine, then gives him an, an injection. Uh, in the day of treatment, Alex appears in the auditorium in a straitjacket. His head is strapped to the back of a restraining chair, so he can neither turn his head nor look away. Uh, an eye doctor installs clamps onto his eyelids and to that forcibly keeps Alex's eyes open. Uh, then the doctor constantly drops eye wash into Alex's grotesquely clamped open eyes where Alex is subjected to two violent films. Uh, the first shows explicit scenes of a severe beating, and the second is a gang rape. Um, although, like, he's excited to watch it at first. Um, like, halfway through the first film, Alex begins to vomit. Or, uh, I'm sorry, Alex begins to feel 
sick. And by the uh, second one, Alex is shouting for something uh, for him to puke into or vomit into rather. Um, it's it's clear that whatever drugs they're giving him is like immediately starting to take effect. Um, at the rear of the auditorium, Dr. Brodsky, uh, played by Carl Durling, explains that the uh, the obs uh, explains to observe that the drugs administered to Alex's uh, is causing a form of paralysis with deep feeling of terror and helplessness. Uh, following the screening, uh, Dr. Branham assures Alex that his feeling of sickness is just a sign that he's getting better. So a little fun fact about that scene, but the uh, the doctor, or at least the actor who is standing um, next to him, putting the eye drops in uh, into Malcolm McDowell's eyes, was an actual doctor. Uh, you know, legit, like knowing how dangerous the scene was, I'm sure Kubrick was like, okay, let's, you know, let's make sure, you know, someone who knows what they're actually doing is doing it right here. Um, but like, so, um, Malcolm McDowell's eyes were like, uh, anesthetized, um, like for the torture scenes. So he could film for like periods of time without too much discomfort. But his like eyes reportedly got uh, repeatedly scratched by those metal lid locks. So despite the fact he's getting those eye drops, like I, I figured, even with those little shifts of his eyes, he's still getting those like small cuts from having those things poking him. Like even in just the you know slightest ways. But yeah, it's a it's a pretty intense scene to watch. Uh, the following day, um, Alex is back in the auditorium where he has to watch two more shows: one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Um, while viewing scenes of Nazis during World War II, Alex begins screaming in earnest. And uh, the background music is none other than Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And Alex begins screaming that he shouldn't be made to feel sick while listening to such beautiful music. Uh, he's, you know, in the movie, screaming out, it's a sin, it's a sin. Like, uh, you know, and, and when the doctor's going to ask, like, what is? And like, the, the fact that, you know, Beethoven's music is being played over this, like, Beethoven didn't do anything. He didn't, you know, it's not his fault for this. Um, which, you know, it's hammering home that, like, uh, how do I phrase it? Like, in the book, um, there's this great quote that Alex says and uh, that, like, it kind of sums up, like, what his character is, how he has, like, a different set of morals, um, how he doesn't see everything as black and white. It's just the... Uh, and I guess the best quote here is, what I do, I do because I like to do. So again, kind of painting them in like, a, not so much a wild, but just like someone who has their own kind of feelings, how like the world should be, um, kind of how he doesn't operate on everyone else's level. And the fact that like the one thing that he likes uh, is actually now being used against them, like is just that's you know that's absolutely just unacceptable for him um and you know he's he's starting to scream like and just whatever he can do to like get it to stop but you know clearly the doctor believes that the experiment is starting to work um to which uh brodsky loudly apologizes and apologizes saying that it can't be helped while he quietly speculates to the nearby staff um that perhaps this is like uh, the punishment element. 
two weeks later, uh, presumably 12 more treatments. Again, uh, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Uh, Alex is finally paraded before a group of dignitaries by the Interior Ministry. Alex is uh, there for demonstration purposes to show that, you know, the technique actually works. Um, he's, like, first confronted by an angry Irishman played by Klon... Uh, <laughs> damn it, screwdriver. Uh, an angry Irishman played by John Clive who throws Alex to the ground and forces him to lick his boots. Uh, once more, <laughs> a little side thing here, but I guess Alex's eyes got... Uh, cornea got scratched again when uh in the scene like where he physically got kicked and i believe they said he cracked a rib but yeah you know <laughs> i guess that's just part of a making a film in the 70s and b uh being in a clockwork orange uh i digress um so after he uh you know gets beaten in front of everyone uh they you know they they think the irishman who leaves uh, before bringing on a statuesque platinum blonde uh, played by Virginia Weathers, clad only in panties. Wow, wow, wee wow. Alex collapses in a fit of nausea when he tries to touch her breast, but again, he, he just like collapses into a fit of nausea and just starts gagging. Uh, the interior minister proclaims a new era in law enforcement and social justice, but the prison chaplain exclaims that the procedure has database uh or i'm sorry <laughs> the procedure has debased alex's uh, alex's human nature by taking away his ability to choose good over evil the interior uh, interior minister claim uh, counter claims that the only thing that matters is the result so yeah that's that's kind of the the moral question here right it's like what is um what is considered good if there is no evil you know like is it more um is it more monstrous to take away someone's choice to where you know um to where there is only good and then you know that being case and that like just doing the greatest of evil there um, yeah so you know scroll that around for a little bit so being deemed successfully cured or at least for the time, um, Alex returns home to find his parents, uh, plus a stranger, played by Clive Francis, sitting in the living room, reading newspapers, uh, accounting his release. Alex tries to make awkward small talk when he hints about like wanting to move back home, but his father tells him that Joe, the new lodger, has already paid the next month's rent. Um, Alex is ups upset by Joe, who's ingratiated himself into the parent uh, into his parents' family, um, and pushes the situation by like uh, castigating Alex for the things he did before uh, being sent to prison and breaking his parents' hearts. Um, Alex kind of gets like angry and attempts to get physical, but before um, Alex can hit Joe, like the psychological conditioning kicks in and just like leaves him dry heaving um to the dismay and disgust of joe and alex's parents like not really knowing why he's now just suddenly choking and like dry heaving um when he finally catches his breath alex just leaves but uh can you imagine that like yes you know yes he did something wrong but you know he comes home to find his parents like <laughs> moved on more or less they let someone move into like his own room 
um they even you know alex even asked like what happened to my snake and like oh we like threw him out <laughs> uh, so yeah that's, that's like horrible and yeah as you know your parent shouldn't like give up on your child no matter what but like i think given the circumstance they're not in the wrong since like once more again alex is just a little shit bastard who kind of deserves everything that's coming to him and again spoilers this is kind of where everything starts coming full circle so all the wrongs he did start catching up with them um quite literally alex is like he's out on his own and he's staring at the the river um below a bridge and like contemplating suicide uh, he's approached by a bum seeking spare change and alex is like reaches into his pocket for some change uh, and hands it over taking a closer look though the bum recognizes alex as the same young man who beat him under the bridge over two years ago alex looks at the bum in horror and tries to like escape uh, but is trapped under the very same underpass where the bum and uh, where the bum and his other uh, buddies beat him up, or I'm sorry, uh, where Alex, <laughs> uh, but is trapped under the very same underpass where Alex um, and his droogs beat that same bum before, but now the roles are reversed, and now the bum and his uh, his like homeless buddies are now beating up Alex, who is now cowering on the ground and is like disabled by the Ludwig. Um, treatment so he's just there like again curled up dry heaving and you know unable to uh do anything about it but luckily for him uh constables show up to break up the fight unluckily for him those same constables happen to be um dim and georgie you know his former friends uh the ones who betrayed him uh yeah in those past two years they now became cops so uh, demonstrating that the police training hasn't altered their basic violent natures, they handcuff Alex and drive him out to the, out of town. And in the woods, like they find like a, a cattle trough filled with like filthy water where George beats him with his baton and then uh, attempts to drown him. So it's, it's yeah, nothing too pretty here. It's <laughs> again, like you're, you know, those same people that he screwed over again, they screwed him back. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> I think this movie, if nothing, it hammer homes the concept of karma because, you know, what goes around definitely comes around if you, uh, you know, you play in one direction or the other. Um, so they remove the handcuffs and they leave them battered and gasping and basically left for dead. Uh, you know, I think having their fill uh, with the thoughts of home echoing in his head, like, Alex staggers to the first house he can find and wanders uh, and finds a welcoming backlit sign that reads home. Uh-oh. Um, at this home, Frank Alexander sits in a typewriter, now bound in a wheelchair that uh, that he's used ever since. He was severely beaten two years ago. Um, Julian. <laughs> uh, this, this might be, like, another reason just to watch this movie, but Julian who's uh, played by David Prowse, which if you don't know that name, you know, he unfortunately passed away, I believe last year. Yeah. Last year, 2020 uh, in November, unfortunately, but um, David Prowse is probably best known as playing Darth Vader. So uh, 
it's it's very strange to see him um you know not clad in black plate armor but instead wearing like a muscle tee and pink short shorts so <laughs> um i i always give my brother you know hell about this and sent pictures like whenever i just want to make fun of him since he's a, a big star wars fan but i digress um julian again played by david prowse is his muscular attendant who answers the door uh, as julian opens the door alex collapses into the entryway and julian carries him into the home uh, when confronted by a concerned Mr. Alexander, Alex realizes he's at the very same residence in which two years earlier, he and his former partners in crime slash gang rape slash uh, breaking and entering, um, you know, uh, this place. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, talk about an awkward moment. Um he relaxes, however, when he realizes that Mr. Alexander couldn't possibly recognize him due to the fact that Alex and his droogies wore masks in those days. So, you know, maybe if he pulled his wiener out, he might recognize him. But, um, you know, at, at this point, just uh, seeing him without a mask, like Mr. Alexander, again, has no idea who Alex is. So might be like the one upshot here. Um but uh, he does claim to recognize Alex, but fortunately for him, uh, Mr. Alexander knows Alex only as the subject of the Ludovico technique and invites, like, uh, invites Alex to, like, you know, uh, not quite freshen up, but, like, you know, clean your wounds. Like, clearly you're in bad shape. Like, come stay, you know, have dinner. Um, let me at least pick your brain a little bit and talk about what's going on. Um but as Alex is soaking in the bathtub, Mr. Alexander is calling some friends uh, with he discusses um, with whom you got to be proper here with whom he discusses the political repercussions of Alex's Ludovico conditioning. He believes that the government has a totalitarian agenda and exemplified by his willingness to rob its citizens of their free will. So Again, he's afraid that, like, the Ludovico technique is going to start with prisoners, but eventually move up to, like, uh, you know, your average day citizen, and, you know, who knows from there. But as uh, he finishes the conversation, Alex uh, Alexander arranges a visit with the person on the other end of the phone, saying that uh, he'll be here, and he hangs up. So, you know, after kind of realizing that like he now uh mr alexander rather can use um alex as a political pawn like realizing like we can use alex to basically um you know stop this like possible future from happening um when uh he hears like singing coming from the bathroom and in the bath alex has struck up a bright rendition of singing in the rain which <laughs> you know terrible song to start singing especially in the home that you know, uh, two years earlier, you literally beat and raped and ended up uh, murdering uh, Mr. Alexander's wife in that circumstance. Um, cut to Mr. Alexander, who's like having a uh, what's like an uh, oh, fuck. Uh, again, cut back to uh, Mr. Alexander, who's like 
recognize this song and it's just straight having like an epileptic fit um it's just like so overcome with anger and rage like suddenly realizing who is you know who alex exactly is um but with that in mind now um later at the dinner table obviously distraught uh and obviously distraught mr alexander encourages alex to eat and drink um flanked by like uh mr alexander who's clearly like now onto it uh who alex is and um julian alex eats a plate of spaghetti while mr alexander uh like plies alex with more wine and as he eats alex grows like increasingly fearful wondering if the hostile looking old man knows his like real identity um suddenly mr alexander brings up the subject of his wife's rape and subsequent death uh, he believes that though she officially died of pneumonia, it was her broken spirit that killed her. Uh, she was, according to Mr. Alexander, a victim of the modern age, uh, just as Alex is a victim of the modern age. He tells Alex that uh, he tells Alex that two of his friends are expected and they will stop by to help the boy. Uh, minutes later, Dolan, played by John uh, Savildent, and a woman, uh, Margaret. Zack, I'm sorry, uh, Tyzak, enter. Uh, they question Alex about the Ludovico tra uh, treatment and whether it's true that in addition to conditioning him against sex and violence, it also made him incapable of listening to music. Alex replies that he only feels a foreboding sense of extreme uh, depression when he hears Beethoven's Ninth Symphony specifically, at which point he uh, passes out face down into the plate of spaghetti. Uh, he had been drugged by the wine. Um, Dolan congratulates Mr. Alexander, who then asks Julian to bring the car around front. Uh, the conspirators have plans for Alex that will embarrass the government. What could that mean? So Alex awakens uh, the next morning in a small second floor bedroom window in an unknown country house. Uh, the room is like suddenly flooded with the strains of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony being blasted from a stereo in the room below. Uh, cut to Mr. Alexander down below, like and he's got a look of just complete satisfaction on his face, knowing that Alex is like just being driven insane and is ultimately driven to suicide where he leaps from the second floor window onto a stone patio below. Thump. Sometime later, Alex wakes up in the hospital in a full body cast. Uh, having survived a suicide attempt. New, uh, newspaper clippings reveal that the government is being vilified for the inhumane experiment. Uh, the interior minister... Bleh, the interior minister is being subjected to especially fierce attack. Alex's parents visit, apologizing for not taking him back and promising his old room will be ready when he's released from the hospital. Yay, parents! Did the right thing. Poor... Uh, Poor Joe for getting kicked out. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, next, Alex is visited by Dr. Tyler, played by uh, Pauline Taylor. <laughs> Dr. Taylor, played by Pauline Taylor. <laughs> uh, psychiatrist. Um, he tells her uh, he had the strangest dreams of meeting scientists messing around in his head. She says she's unable to interpret his dream and then cheerfully shows Alex a series of cartoons uh, having like sexual or violent connotations, 
uh, Alex is to supply the caption. Uh, like there's a scene where, um, or at least one of the slides is like, uh, there's a woman like naked in bed, like, and there's a guy climbing in the window. Um, you know, it's, uh, it says, I forget what the line is on the actual like script, but uh, Alex replies like, sorry, love, no time for the old in and out, just here to read the meter. Um, clearly showing that like he's back to his old self, or at least for the most part. Um, he pleases Dr. Taylor by indicating through his descriptions of the cartoon that sex and violence are the foremost interest of his mind. I guess that's a better way to put it. Um, once the Ludovico technique uh, has been successfully reversed, the interior minister visits Alex. Uh, as an autocratic minister spoon feeds dinner to the juvenile thug, he assures Alex that he wants to be his friend. Uh, with oily smoothness, the minister apologizes for what the government has done. Uh, he promises Alex a good job on a good salary, provided that Alex helps the government. He assures that the lad is. Uh, he assures the lad that the subverse writer Frank Alexander, who had threatened him, has been put away. Alex milks this meeting for all it's worth, and like he, you know, he forces this uh, again autocratic minister to literally like feed uh, Alex at this point. So he's making him cut a steak, and he's making him you know put in his mouth. Um, as a symbol of understanding, the minister calls forth his assistance, and like, basically the media pulls in at this point. Um, there's like people bringing in flowers and massive stereos, all playing uh, Beethoven's Beethoven, <laughs> Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, followed by a troop of reporters. And yeah, like I said, uh, everyone starts posing, uh, taking pictures. Alex poses with his new friends, uh, the interior minister, aka Fred. Uh, as cameras flash, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony reaches its uh, choral climax, and Alex's eyes roll back in his head as he fantasizes. Like the last scene is just him, you know, in his head about having an orgy in the snow with a gorgeous blonde to the applause of Victorian ladies and gentlemen. Uh, to which the final words in the movie is like Alex's voiceover. He goes, "I was cured, all right." So implying that like he's back to his old self again, ready to pick up where he left off. Um, and that's where the movie ends. But uh, in the book, however, it goes on a little bit further. He winds up making new friends. Um, so again, in the book, he's supposed to be like 15. Uh, in this movie, they start him out at the age of 17. And by the end of this, he's 19. Um, but I digress. So at the end of the, uh, well, the book rather, um, after this kind of occurs, He's, uh, he's made himself some new friends, like just of another bunch of punk kids. Um, if I remember, they're like supposed to be, you know, 14, 15 year olds. Uh, they mentioned that like the fashion I can only describe is like something that, uh, Klaus Naomi would wear. Um, if you don't know who that is, literally Google the name. And like, if you, uh, just look, look at this guy, you can't imagine like the fashion sense that, uh, <laughs> that is supposed to be going on in this dystopic future here um but if not just think like a triangular um tuxedo with just an oversized bow tie uh probably made everything made out of plastic or some kind of vinyl <laughs> but um i digress he's he's going about his business and like the um his underlings they come to him like hey we got an idea to go do this and as opposed to him like laying down the law i think he might have learned his lesson here 
because he goes, you know what? You guys go ahead with it. I'm uh, I'm gonna call it a night. And uh, he kind of lets he turns them loose. You know, they go about their business to, you know, torture, rape, and uh, steal whatever they can get their holds on uh, hands on. And instead goes to I think they go back to the same restaurant that they were at before. Um, to meet yet again one of his other ghosts of his past. So when he met uh, Dim and George, they had become police officers, but uh, he meets meets his uh, fourth buddy, Pete, who ironically, like Alex, got out of it. He kind of grew up, you know, that, that's the only way I can put it. And he's actually there with his wife and uh, kind of a contrast to this whole movie. Um, they actually have a really nice, polite conversation. Just like, hey, how have you been? You know, I heard about everything that happened. Like, I'm sorry to hear that. And um, once more again, it, it kind of just ends on like a note that like Alex wasn't forced to change, but he decided to, um, you know, maybe it is kind of the same thing. Like he sees Pete with his wife and he starts thinking, you know what, maybe maybe that's for me. Like, I think it's time that I you know started a new chapter in my life. So instead of kind of that um, ambiguous, like he's going to go back to just being a complete scum monster and ends more on like a all right you know good for you 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 kind of grew up out of your teenage angst <laughs> uh, i wish it was only that simple right so yeah that concludes the uh review of this movie um so let's go over a little bit of the uh the fun trivia stuff um like uh for instance the first cut of this movie before hiring several assistants the movie ran almost four hours my god so that's that's just under the uh the total length of the movie which is about two hours 16 minutes uh so yeah could you imagine the movie being that long that'd be like every little scene that was in the book kind of rammed into there so maybe you know maybe that is the better cut there but i i'm not gonna lie i probably would have liked to see all of it but that's just me um some other stuff like the, for instance, uh, another little Russianism, but uh, Korova is the Russian word for cow and Maloko is the Russian word for milk. So, you know, the Korova milk bar, which serves, serves Maloko is a cow milk bar, which serves milk. So, you know, there's your little Russianisms. Um, additionally, the snake, uh, Basil was introduced into the film by Stanley Kubrick when he found out that Malcolm McDowell had a fear of reptiles. Uh, so, um, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of funny that like, uh, well, maybe not funny. I think that's, that's in the vein of Kubrickism to bring something that a character would actually, you know, would like that the actor is actually terrified of. Um, <laughs> that's totally screwed up, but yeah, that's, that's the truth there. Uh, I let's see. I do need to make a little correction there when I mentioned that um, again. Alex is supposed to be you know 15 or so, and in the scene with the two young and lovelies, um, apparently they weren't supposed to be 12 or 13. Uh, they're 10. Yeah. So, <laughs> ooh, that's that's really bad there. Uh, and I believe they cut it out because they didn't want like, uh, I mean they they wanted a likable character, but. You know, come on, dude. Like, no one's gonna, no one's gonna want to see like a ten-year-old get raped in a, you know, movie to this degree. Let alone two of them. Oof. 
And I can keep going on and on about different facts about this movie, but I think we'll end it here with like my favorite part. Um, since Malcolm McDowell, uh, it says here he like took to the made up language of like throwing in Russian words there pretty easily because uh, apparently he's used to playing like William Shakespeare plays in the Royal Shakespeare Company. So again, he's classically trained. So yeah, I, I thought that's really cool as a matter of fact. Uh, so with that, we'll go ahead and end our review here of uh, A Clockwork Orange. Um, again, it's not a movie for everybody, so I do apologize if this was a bit much. Um, but then again, it was made in the 70s, so that's that's kind of the whole goal was just it <laughs> seemingly to be like who can outdo someone else. Um, but I guess you can't help but love Malcolm McDowell in this movie as the uh, titular character of Alex since... Uh, He's just a, I hate to say it, but a lovable monster, or at least a, a devil with an angel's face in this movie. I digress. Thank you for stopping in. Thank you for listening. And um, I, I tried to get Victoria to join me tonight, but, you know, she wasn't really feeling too well. So, or, well, you know, she's a little more tired than normal, but soon enough, she'll be back. So I do apologize if, uh, if the movies I review aren't exactly your cup of tea. I know... Uh, my tastes are far different than Victoria's, but, you know, I love her to death, and I keep asking her, you know, is there any movie in particular that, uh, you know, you want me to review for you or anything like that, but she, you know, says, no, no, like, you you go ahead and do you, and, you know, that I shall. Um, God, I really want her to join me, because it was either going to do, you know, this movie, Clockwork Orange, I was going to really try, like, hell to get her to do uh, Teen Witch, which... I don't know why I love that movie, but I, I just do. Um, I think it's just the 80s cheese that makes it whole, including the, you know, top da- uh, top that dance scene. And uh, it just uh, puts a smile on my face every time I watch it. Um, but yeah, I digress. Um, thank you again for joining. And you take care. Be safe. And I'll catch you all next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>